So let's pray for that. Lord, we do need uh, your wisdom as we sit under your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts. We thank you for the moving of the Holy Spirit and uh, the gift of him, Lord, in our lives as our teacher and pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study in Acts chapter 16. You remember right around the beginning of Acts 16 is when that second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul began. And you recall that initially it was to be just to kind of go and visit some old friends, people that they had ministered to about five years earlier. But about halfway through that trip, it it began to hit communities that they had never been to before. And one of those communities was across the Aegean Sea. It was in the area of today of Europe, um, in the area of Greece today. And it was that, back then it was called the region of Macedonia. And there was one city in particular in the region of Macedonia, which was the, the city of Philippi. We have the book of Philippians, for instance, referring to that particular city. And so as we saw, our friend Paul his companion Silas, the young man, kind of a helper, Timothy, and then also Luke, the fellow who would write this book of Acts and would also write the gospel that's named after him, that those four went into that region of Macedonia, they went into that city of Philippi, and they began to minister to people. They began to communicate the gospel message to a people that had never heard it before, and they had some success in doing so. Last week during our time together, we saw that Lydia a successful business person, a Gentile by kind of birth and uh, heritage, raised as a Gentile, that had seemingly converted to the Jewish faith, now had her thinking even more refined and came to understand that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people. She came to know Jesus during Paul and Silas's and the others' ministry. Second person we were introduced was that little slave girl, a young woman, we never learn her name, we're told she's a damsel, so she's a young little girl, uh, demonically possessed, had the ability because of these demons to predict the future and made a lot of money for her slave owners, not for herself, but for her slave owners through her being able to predict the future and things of that nature. She too came to know Jesus and began a relationship with him because of the ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. So interesting, two very different people one at the upper echelon of society and one at the lowest echelon of society, and both of them came to know Christ because the same message was preached to both of them through the Apostle Paul and the others. Well, let's pick up in verse 16. Let's reread a little bit of that story of the slave girl because we kind of stopped in the middle of the story. And so starting in verse 16, it says this, Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination And she brought her owners much gain through her fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. We read that last week, picking up verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul, they seized Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them, and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, They threw them into prison, and they ordered the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, that went from bad to worse pretty quickly, didn't it? Here we're having a great time in Philippi. People are responding. This is great. Next thing you know, we're getting beaten, stripped, beaten, thrown uh, into the inner prison, and fastened in stocks. Verse 24 points that out, fastened in stocks, and it says their feet were fastened in stocks. It's possible because the practice in fastening their feet was also their hands and their neck to the wall as well, and it's possible that that was the situation that they found themselves in, all because they helped a little young slave girl that had, and they helped deliver her from the demonic forces that 
had gained control over her. And so Paul's actions of delivering that little girl sets off a battle there in the city of Philippi, but it's not a religious battle. So it's not like a group of people like, look, you're leading this little girl astray or something like that. It was an economic battle. The owners of this little girl were perturbed, were bothered by the fact that their opportunity to make money had been taken away because of Paul and Silas's religion and these things that they were preaching. As you see there in verse 19, it says, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Something visibly changed in this little girl, either in her words, her actions, her demeanor, something visibly changed so that her owners knew immediately that she was no longer going to be able to bring them profit. And they weren't happy. And their fury was unleashed against Paul and Silas. Notice this about these owners. They don't care anything for this little girl. They don't care if her life was one of misery. They don't care that these demons controlled her. They don't care what these demons might have done for her. For her, the only, for them, I should say, the only thing that they cared about was the money that she could bring to them. One commentator said it this way, perhaps a little bit crass, but said they were occult pimps spiritually prostituting her. And that's exactly what they were doing. And when she was no longer of value to them, they took it out on those that took away her ability to make money for her, and so for them, I should say. And their response, the end of verse 19 says, is they arrest or they seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace, and they put them before the rulers. Now, 20 and 21 are going to tell us what they accuse them of. It's three things. One, being Jews. First things first, what's that have to do with anything? But that's the first thing. The anti-Semitism comes out or that, that which separates them from the norm of society, we're going to uh, hinge on that. Second thing, they uh, accuse them of disturbing the city. Now, I have to imagine that the little girl who was screaming all the time, that is not screaming, it's less disturbing than it was when she was screaming, but they are disturbing the city. And the third thing it says there in 21 is they advocate customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept and to practice. And no evidence of that in the words that we have written down for us. But they bring these accusations that are obviously not the real reason for their actions, but these men know that they can't go before the magistrates and say, no, we can't make any more money. Let's kill these two. That's not going to fly. And so instead they come up with accusations, accusations that are going to appeal to the community's prejudice against the Jews and its strong patriotism. Philippi was a city that was specifically designed as a retirement city for past Roman soldiers. So it was considered to be this very patriotic society. You know, you got all the guys with their hats that I fought in this war and all that kind of stuff. And everyone's like, we love Rome. Rome's the greatest. And the parades and, and all those sorts of things. And so they appeal to the patriotism of the Roman society as well as their prejudice against the Jews. And they essentially accuse Paul and Silas of being troublemaking Jews that are trying to upset the Roman way of life. Verse 22 says, and the crowd joined in in attacking them. Why? Why? The crowd does that, though. The crowd joins in in attacking them, and the magistrates rip their garments off of them and they gave order to beat them, orders to beat them with rods. Again, why? What's the evidence? What's the reason? Why are you doing this? Now, in the Roman Empire, there were two different sets of laws in place for society. It didn't matter who was in the society, there were two sets of laws in place. There was a set of laws that were in place for those that were Roman citizens, and then there were a set of laws that were in place for those that were non Roman citizens. And Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens, they all sort of co-mingled in society with two different sets of laws. Roman citizens had very specific, zealously guarded civil rights, much like we do as Americans. Non-citizens had no civil rights, and they were subject to the whims of both the multitude and the magistrates. And that's demonstrated in the passage that is before us. And so the magistrates decide, you know what? Just beat them. That'll teach them a lesson, subject to the whims of the magistrates. Now, since this crowd assumed, and we're going to learn they weren't, 
where they were, since this crowd assumed that Paul and Silas were not Roman citizens, when in actuality they were, but since they assumed that they were not, they felt free to abuse them in the manner that we just read. And so they stripped them of their outer garments, they beat them with rods. This is going to be one of three times Paul tells us that he was beaten with rods. He tells us that in the book of 2 Corinthians. And then following that beating, they throw them into prison. No trials, none of these sorts of things, no jewelry, anything like that. And then not just any part of the prison, but they throw them into the dungeon of the prison, the inner portion of the prison. And just to make sure they'll never be able to escape, they fasten their, their feet at the very least, and perhaps they fasten their neck and hands as well. And so here, Paul and Silas, having been beaten as they were, are now imprisoned in the maximum security conditions that they can find. No trial, no opportunity to explain themselves, no having a defense attorney you know, stand up for them, none of these things. And as you look at this, how grateful we are in our nation for the protections that we typically would enjoy. Continuing in verse 25, it says this. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, the other prisoners. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How about Paul and Silas? Aren't they something? Beaten wrongfully, thrown into an inner prison, their hands, maybe their neck and feet, fastened to a wall there, and all of this. And here, what are they doing? As it says in verse 20, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God. Probably in too much pain to sleep from the beating, from being pressed up against the wall, probably in too much pain to sleep, they instead used their time to pray and to sing. The phrase there where it says singing hymns, it's more literally to sing the praise of. And so these guys are singing praise songs. They're not singing songs like, you know, woe is me and nobody knows. You know, they're not singing songs like that. They're singing praise songs to the Lord after having been beaten, wrongfully imprisoned, and in physical pain in there. And as I read that, just that quick little verse, I have a hard time seeing myself do that. I, I find myself, probably in that circumstances, grumbling and complaining, Lord, this is what you give me, and I try and serve you, and all these kinds of things. Or, Lord, lightning bolts, bring them. People need to die so that they learn, you know, this is where my attitude is, and yet my friends Paul and Silas here they have joy, it talks about them rejoicing, enough that they can sing praises in this particular incident here. That's hard to do. But it reveals a little bit of the attitude and the hard attitude of the Apostle Paul and Silas. And so whereas many of us would be grumbling and complaining, these two, they are praying and rejoicing. The city, its magistrates, the jailer, all of them, they took away the freedom and the comforts of Paul and Silas, but what they could not do is take away the presence of God from Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas, in those incidents there, they begin to direct their heart unto the Lord. And even in the crumminess of the situation, they, are, they find that they're able to praise the Lord. And the same is true for us. For every circumstance that we face, the, the horrible ones, the crummy ones that are there, and even the good ones when often we don't think about God, we can praise the Lord in those circumstances. 
And, and not just because, oh, i got to praise the Lord in these circumstances. God can move our hearts in such a way as our hearts are in right place with him that we can praise him even in the midst of those circumstances. The lesson then for us is this, is because we know as believers that God's presence will never leave us, we can be certain that no circumstance in which we might find ourselves that the Lord will not be there in the midst that he will not sustain us in the midst, that he will not lift us up even above that particular trial. And that's what God is doing in Paul and Silas's life. He's lifting them up. And I'll say this, Paul and Silas are allowing him to lift them up above the trial and above the circumstance, so much so that they can praise even in that crummy situation. And it's that that enables us, them and us, to rejoice what a, problem, what a wonderful promise that is, that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that his presence can go with us even in the most unpleasant of circumstances. Quite frankly, anybody can praise the Lord in the pleasant circumstances. When you're sitting on the beach and the sun is setting and you just had a nice meal and everything is wonderful, oh, praise the Lord, he's so good, he's so good. Yeah, anybody can do that. But when God gives us the ability to praise him when circumstances are really difficult, that's Christian victory. That's God intervening even in the midst of the difficult circumstances. And that's what our friends hear. So let me just say this. If that's not your norm, if you notice the tendency, you have this tendency to grumble and complain in those circumstances, whereas you'll praise in these wonderful circumstances over here, then that is an indicator. Lord, there's something going on in my heart that is wrong. It's not an indicator of, you know, I really got to work harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to praise more in this. That, that's not what it's an indicator of. It's an indicator that there's a problem so that you can turn into the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to change my heart even in this. Even in this, I want to have a heart that rejoices in you. And the Lord begins to minister. He begins to massage. He begins to soften the hardness of that clay. And next thing you know, you begin to say, man, God, even though this situation is crummy, you have been so good. You are so good. And you begin to go down that path of praising the Lord and rejoicing. And you find yourself at midnight in a prison somewhere singing praises. Shocked that even you're doing that. And that's what's going on with our friends here. They're rejoicing in these circumstances. What a different way to live in this world, isn't it? Very different from the society that is around us. And notice what happens in verse 25. It tells us that the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know if you've ever been in prison. <laughs> I don't know if you know the grumbling that sometimes can go on in there and things of that nature, but it all stops and they begin to listen to Paul and Silas and the praise songs that they're singing and reverberating around there in that dungeon setting. And it must have been such an incredibly strange sound for the other prisoners to hear. People praying and praising God at midnight in the midst of a brutal prison. And they probably saw Paul and Silas come in. They saw the wounds on their back and the bumps on their head. And so the prisoners, they take notice. They begin to get quiet. They begin to listen to Paul and Silas. Notice what they're doing. They're watching Paul and Silas respond to the circumstances that they found themselves in. And in doing so, by just observing and watching Paul and Silas deal with these circumstances, in doing so, they're learning something about Paul and Silas's God and their relationship with God. And so, brother and sister, as followers of Christ, be reminded that the world is paying attention to the way that you live your life and the way that you respond to life's circumstances. The world is paying attention to that. I had a cousin recently, just out of nowhere, she, she just made this comment to me about kind of peace that I respond to in circumstances. And it was just out of nowhere, and I didn't know she was paying attention. And yet for years, she'd been paying attention for how my wife and I respond to circumstances, the good ones and the bad ones. The world is watching, and it is taking notice. Now, that applies certainly to your walk. Does your, walk, does your talk line up with your walk? You say all kinds of things, I love Jesus and all this stuff, and then you're out kind of doing this and you're doing that and you're knowingly walking in sin. It certainly applies to that. But it also, as we see in this instant here, instance here, it applies to how you respond to life's difficult circumstances. Do they throw you? Do they shake you? 
Does your religion go out the, the, the window in those instances, your relationship with the Lord? People take notice of that. Is it no different from the way the unbelieving man and woman would respond in those particular circumstances? If it's not, well, then why bother should I begin to listen to you and your relationship with Christ? And whether I should have a relationship with Christ, you're no different from everybody else. The world is looking. The world is watching. And if a man or a woman sees a Christian respond to life's difficult circumstances by rising above those circumstances, even in the deepest of trials, now you have those other individuals' attention. Now that person is beginning to wonder if Jesus could bring them the same peace that you enjoy or the same joy that you have or the same calm that you have in certain circumstances even in the midst of their own trials. Now they're wondering. And that's what's going on here. These prisoners, they're watching, they're observing, they're listening. Everybody quieted down. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now clearly, this is a supernatural earthquake for a variety, number of reasons. One, the timing, the location. But notice also, the doors were opened, everyone's chains fell off of them, but no walls fell down or anything like that. Clearly, the Lord is at work in this earthquake that we have here. Verse 27, it says, So when the jailer awoke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, as Paul cried, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do no harm to yourself, we are all here. Now that seems like a strange response. You would kill yourself, you know, because this earthquake happened. I didn't control the earthquake, you know, this sort of thing. But the rule of things, Roman law and Roman custom was, is that a guard who for whatever reason allowed their prisoner to escape, that they would receive the penalty of their escaped prisoners. And so this guard is responsible for these prisoners. And if he lost them, he lost his life. And so rather than face the executioner, he decided to take matters into his own hand and he began to prepare to take his own life. And yet Paul, tucked away in the darkness, midnight of this inner prison, this dungeon, Paul calls out. The word there, in my version, it says cried. It's the word screamed. It's the same type of word that was used of the little girl that walked behind Paul screaming the whole time, and Paul got greatly annoyed by that. So Paul screams out, telling the man not to harm himself because each of them are there. He assures the man, he said, you don't have to harm yourself. None of us have left. Notice that, none of us have left. All the prisoners remained. I get Paul and Silas remaining, but these other prisoners who they don't necessarily know, they would run away, you would expect. And yet all the prisoners remained. And I think what this speaks to is this. They were observing Paul and Timothy as they responded to life's trials. Now they're observing how Paul and Timothy respond to the open doors. And Paul and Timothy are remaining there. Excuse me, Silas are remaining there. And so too are they. They're looking to them for direction. They're looking to them for guidance. Paul and Silas are having an impact on the culture that is around them. And others are now looking to them, how shall we respond in this circumstance, and taking their lead from the way that Paul and Silas are responding to the circumstance. So Paul and Silas stay, and so, so too do they. And so again, whether we realize it or not, the life that we are living has the ability to impact those that are around us. It could be for good, or it could be for bad. But the unbelieving world is watching and if they are impressed by how you're responding to certain circumstances, they will seek you out when they need to make decisions about how to respond to circumstances that they're dealing with. They're observing, they're watching, they're learning, and then they're looking to you for direction. Now, how easy it would have been for Paul and Silas to conclude that God had provided for them a miraculous jailbreak, right? Wow, look what the Lord did. You remember when Peter was in prison? This was uh, Acts chapter 12. He's sleeping there. The, the angel opened up the doors. Peter's still sleeping there. He gives him a little nudge. Let's go. And Peter just left. The doors were open. He left. Well, the doors are open here. And yet Paul and Silas do, do not leave, which it doesn't tell us, but I think speaks to the fact that Paul and Silas were led by the Holy Spirit 
to remain in place, even as Peter was led by the Holy Spirit through that angel to get up and to leave. And it's the theme of the book of Acts that we have been seeing, and that is being submitted to. Remember we, we, the title of the book of Acts? Some call it the Acts of the Apostles. Others refer to it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The, a theme of the book of Acts is the moving of the Holy Spirit in, his, in the disciples of Jesus. And so Paul and Silas are led by the Holy Spirit to remain in place there, even though the chains are done, are gone. The doors are wide open. Paul screams out, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Imagine how dramatic a scene this would have been. You have the hardened jailer falling down, trembling before two of his prisoners. Likely the same jailer that either beat Paul and Silas before or ordered one of his men to beat Paul and Silas before. And now he has cast himself down before them and he's looking to them for direction for his own life. Specifically, he says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul and Silas, no record of them preaching during the, the time leading up here. All the record we have is of them living, living out their faith. And this man was won over by their lives. It wasn't the miraculously timed earthquake that convinced him. It was Paul and Silas's love, Paul and Silas's grace to remain when they could have only worried about themselves and escape. And that's what he takes notice of. And he is incredibly moved by the fact that they wouldn't get up and run. And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man's fears of losing his life, remember he was going to either be executed or kill himself, his fear of losing his life is now has now given way to a deep conviction of his own sin. His fear of dying has given way to this realization, I'm not ready to die. There's a judgment that is coming. He's no longer afraid to meet the executioner, now he's afraid to meet God. And he has come right to the edge of death and realized that he's not ready. And so he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knows that when he comes to the end of his days and he does meet God face to face, that there will be a judgment that is rightfully going to come upon him. And he asks, what must I, be, what must I do to be saved from that judgment? Now, how does he know that Paul and Silas will know? Well, it's possible. Remember the little girl, what she kept yelling? These men preach to you the way of salvation. And so perhaps it's something from that. Or it's from observing their life because they sat there on death row and they had no fear. They sat there on death row. They sang songs of praise. This man, I'm not there. I want to be there. Sirs, what must I do to be saved from this coming judgment? Paul and Silas were ready to die. This man was not. Paul and Silas were able to rejoice in, this, in prison. This man didn't know anything of that sort of hard attitude. The jailer was impressed by Paul and Silas, and he instantly wanted the kind of life, the kind of hard attitude that Paul and Silas were enjoying. And he says to them, again, as we see there, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas here, they were what God desires for each of us to be in this world, and that is magnets that draw people to God. Not, be careful with this, not magnets that draw people to ourselves. You know, sometimes we want to be these people. We're good, upstanding people. We want people to look at us and honor us and say, well, you're living such a great life. I wish I was more like you. That's not what Paul and Silas are doing. What Paul and Silas are doing, they're living their life in this way. They're a hard attitude, all these things that I've been mentioning, and they're drawing people past them to the Lord. They were magnets for the Lord. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's such an important question. It's a question that every one of us needs to be asking or has to ask at least one time in our lives before we come to the end of our days because notice what it reveals about this man. He, he speaks of this need to be saved. It reveals that this man knew that he had a need, that there was something that he needed to be saved from. A person must know that they are lost before they can be saved. The second thing this question reveals is that he knew that there was something 
that he must do pertaining to his salvation. Now, of course, I'm not talking about, I'm not speaking about works, which would allow him to earn salvation. That's not what we're getting at here, because the scripture is clear that we are saved by faith, not by our works. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of that great truth. That being said, the scripture is also clear, and listen to these words, that while Jesus died to save the whole world, the whole world will not be saved because Jesus died. One is required to respond to his gift of salvation. One is required to receive the gift and apply it to their life. And this man, that's what this man is getting at. This man knows that there is something he must do, but he doesn't know what it is that he must do. And so again, he falls down before Paul and Silas, and he petitions Paul and Silas for their guidance. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'm curious, if someone approached you, or me, if somebody came and approached us in desperation, as this jailer did, and posed that question to you, would you be prepared to answer such a question? If somebody came to you and said, could you explain to me how I can be saved, how I can be ready for death, would you be able to do that? The story is told of a, the head of the British Army Chaplaincy Program. He, he was alive in the late 1800s and through World War I, and he became the head of the British Army Chaplaincy Program. And he had the responsibility of commissioning all of the men that would go with the troops into battle as chaplains. And he took his lead from this particular verse. He reduced his requirements for all of these chaplains, requirements for service, down to this. How his men, how these men would answer this question in three minutes or less. Can you explain in three minutes or less what a person must do to be saved? And if the person could properly answer the question succinctly, they were in as an army chaplain or a military chaplain. If they couldn't, they went back to training, so to speak. And so, again, I asked this question, how would you answer this question succinctly? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul, notice he reduces it to a single sentence. Verse 31, he says, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now, before considering those words, don't miss this important fact. Paul is willing to give the man an answer. The man who beat him, the man who threw him into the inner prison, the man who no doubt harshly didn't gently place his bruised back down but threw him down on the ground, the man who put stocks around, fastens, uh, fasteners around his wrist, perhaps his, his feet certainly so, maybe even his neck, this man who treated them like garbage hours earlier, Paul responds and graciously answers the man's question. He doesn't hold a grudge against him, but instead he reveals to him the way that he can find peace for his soul. He says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the essence of the gospel. Salvation, he says there, will be saved as the result of the work of Christ, which we receive by faith alone. That's God's message to any sinner that reaches out to him in need. Now, I want you to take notice here. In, in the English Standard Version, it says, they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus. That one small word there, that word in, is a significant word. Now, other versions use a different word. The King James, the New King James, the ISV, they use the word on there. So it says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I think on is a better translation here, at least in the way that we use the word in in the English language. For on implies reliance upon, whereas in doesn't necessarily need to do so. And so there's a lot of things that we believe in, but we don't pay really any attention to. We don't give it any mind, so to speak. And so one can believe that 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus that lived. One can believe that he did some wonderful things, that he died. Even you can believe that he rose again, but those beliefs have no real impact on who you are or where you are going or who they are and where they are going. Now, certainly there are certain facts about Jesus that one must know and believe in, but that's only part of the equation. 
Because biblical faith, biblical belief, believing on Jesus is far more than believing certain things to be true. Biblical saving faith is a reliance on those facts. And that's what Paul's getting at. And that's why I, I prefer using the word on there. What Paul is doing is he's calling this man who's already expressed his need to avoid judgment. He's calling this man to rely on the work of Christ to take away that judgment. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now what's interesting is the commentators over the years, people over the years, have criticized Paul here. And they, and well, let's just begin. You're the one who should be criticized, not Paul. But they've criticized Paul here saying that his gospel is an incomplete gospel because he made no reference to sin and judgment. And so they accused the Apostle Paul of preaching what has been referred to as cheap grace. Just believe and you'll be good to go. And you can go to heaven. You want to go to heaven, right? Well, then quickly, here, sign this little card and you're in. Cheap grace. And they accused the Apostle Paul of that. That all Paul's saying is all you need to do is believe. The reality is this. Paul didn't need to make reference to sin and judgment in this statement because this man already realized that he was under sin and judgment. He knew that there was something he needed to be saved from. And so Paul didn't have to go back and prove to him that there was something to be saved from. He picked up where the man was. And where the man was was at the point of being prepared to believe on the Lord Jesus. The man asked how he could be saved. He knew that he needed to be saved from something. And so people accuse Paul of preaching cheap grace. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those that say that since Paul made no reference to sin and judgment, that we need not make any reference to sin and judgment when we communicate the gospel to others. Well, that too is faulty thinking. For again, the reason why Paul made no reference to sin and judgment is because the man already realized he was under sin and judgment. The gospel message is this. We are sinners, that sin must be judged, and that Jesus Christ has taken that judgment upon himself. And the invitation of the gospel is for you and I to place our full trust and reliance upon that work of Christ as the only means by which our sin, which deserves judgment, can be taken care of. And all of that is embodied in the experience that Paul is having with this jailer. And so he says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then he adds this. He says, and you and your whole household. Now Paul's point here is not that if the jailer believes and can go to heaven, that his whole family gets to go to heaven as well. That's not what Paul is communicating. There's an expression, a term for that. It's called household salvation. That's not what Paul is preaching here. What Paul is saying is that salvation is available to this man's wife, to this man's kids, even as it, is an, as it is available to this man through belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. The jailer's household would not be saved just because their dad was saved, their husband was saved. They would be saved because they too placed their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus. Anybody you know, you can tell them that. Verse 33, he took them that same hour of the night, he washed their wounds, and he was baptized. And the man was baptized at once, he and his whole family. This formerly harsh, brutal jailer takes Paul and Silas out of the dungeon and he begins to care for their wounds. Verse 34 points out that he, he gives them some food to eat to strengthen them in that way. This is a man, this jailer has been changed. And his actions are testifying to the change that has gone on within him, the genuineness of his conversion. You remember we learned about Lydia and how she began immediately to show hospitality. And she wasn't saved because of her good works, but her salvation experience was evidenced by good works. And that's what's going on with this man as well. It becomes a proof of the work that God had done within him. And so a person's change of heart will always be demonstrated by their change of deeds as has been demonstrated by Lydia and as this jailer. We note also that night in the early morning hours, he and his family were baptized, symbolizing the new life that is theirs in Christ Jesus. The whole household, they saw no reason to wait. Let's be baptized right now. 
Let's take that step of obedience. And, and for those of us, look, if you're a believer in Christ and you've never been baptized, I'm not saying let's go down to the Delaware today. It's a little chilly out there. But that's a step of obedience that you want to do. And there's no reason to keep putting that particular uh, step of obedience off. And so if that describes you, come talk to us afterwards and we'll find a warm pool somewhere and we'll get you baptized. Verse 34 goes on. Then he brought them up into the house he set food before them, and he rejoiced along, that's the jailer, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This man had gone from the place of suicidal desperation to the place of peace and hope and joy, and pretty much in an instant, in an evening. How wonderful. The power of the gospel to change this man's heart. My prayer is that every one of us has experienced that. Verse 35 goes on. Now, but when it was day, the magistrate sent police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and let's go in peace. Or you go in peace. But Paul said to them, whoa, they've publicly beaten us, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison and now they want us to leave secretly? Now." is what it says there. It's in the Greek. He says, you let them come themselves and take us out. Walk us to city's edge. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and they apologized to them. And they took them out and they asked them, please, to leave the city. I added, please. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, the other Christians, they encouraged them and they departed. Somewhere during the night hours, the magistrates that had ordered Paul and Silas to be beaten, thrown in prison, put in the dungeon of the prison and fastened to the walls of that dungeon, somewhere along the lines they realized, you know what, all right, let's let them go. And they ordered that they would be released. As it says in verse 35, let those men go. Now, what's interesting here is Paul's response to this news. It's essentially, and I tried to give you the sense of it, go in peace. No, nothing doing. We're not going in peace. They publicly beat us without a trial. Roman citizens, mind you. I'm not leaving in peace. You tell them to come down here and talk to us, is what Paul says. Now, in light of what happened the day before, this sounds crazy. It sounds risky. It sounds dumb on the Apostle Paul's part. But what Paul should have been is like, let's get out of here. It sounds that way in all of these things because Philippi seems like a pretty lawless society to me where the officials felt comfortable doing whatever they wanted to whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And so is it really a good idea on the part of the Apostle Paul to poke those people and to provoke them in the way that it seems that he is doing. The answer lies in the middle of verse 37. Look at verse 37 there. It says, men who are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They were Jews, but they were Roman citizens as well. That meant that they had rights that the average non-Roman did not have. The average non-Roman could be dragged in front of the magistrates, could be beaten, could be thrown into prison, and had to deal with that. But privileges came with citizenship, with Roman citizenship. And Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And Philippi was a Roman town made up of people patriotic, very careful to obey Roman law, and yet, unknown to them, they had just broken Roman law by beating, the real word is scourged, unconvicted Roman citizens. And that's a crime according to Roman law. On top of that, Roman citizens were entitled to a trial before being thrown into a prison. Paul and Silas never got a trial, and yet they were thrown into a Roman prison. That too is a crime against Roman law. Somebody made a big mistake. And it's evidence noticed by the statement in verse 36 where the magistrates were afraid they realized they are the ones that made the big mistake. When They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Look at verse 39. Notice how much their tone has changed. So they came and they apologized to Paul and Silas. And they took them out. And they asked them to please, as I've added, leave the city. Paul said, look, our rights have been violated. And you want us to just leave as if they haven't been violated? No, we're not doing it. 
Now, you look at this and you say, is Paul being a jerk? I don't know if you guys, I've been using that word a lot from here. I hope you're okay with it. You know, is Paul being a jerk here? Shouldn't he have just overlooked the magistrate's mistake? They made an error. Shouldn't he just leave quietly when they asked him to leave? Well, in Paul's estimation, the answer is no. Because in Paul's estimation, there's a big difference between having had his rights violated by a private individual and by the Roman officials. Paul was willing, we see it in other examples, he was willing to overlook the offenses of the guy across the street, as the Bible exhorts us to. Proverbs chapter 19, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is is his glory to overlook another's offense. And Paul does that regularly. But Paul was not willing to overlook the offense of the Roman officials that were across the street. And Paul pulls out his Roman citizen card, and he expects that these Roman officials are going to honor that card. He has the right, and he, ex- he has rights, and he expects those rights to be adhered to. Now, here's an interesting thing. Why? Why make a big deal of it? Paul's leaving Philippi anyway and has no idea whether he's going to go back to Philippi again. He does eventually go back there, but he doesn't know that. And so he's leaving anyway. Why get into this big hassle? Why not just say, all right, I accept your apology and leave? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Paul's not just doing this for himself. But he's doing this for those Roman citizens, those new Christians that are being left behind in the city of Philippi. Lydia, her household, the slave girl, the jailer now, and his household. And if these magistrates could do these things to Paul and Silas without impunity, what's to stop them from doing this to other people? Well, I would say this public situation that Paul is forcing will certainly contribute to stopping it. Don't you agree? And so it seems to me Paul is not standing on his own dignity for his own sake, and I just want to set all the record. I I want to walk out of here with my head. I'm not slinking out of this city or anything like that. I don't think that's what Paul's about at all. Rather, it's for the sake of the Christians that are remaining back in Philippi, that their uh, rights will be protected and guaranteed from these loony magistrates that think they can do whatever they want to people. Now, here's another interesting point, I think, to consider. Why didn't Paul bring up the Roman citizenship card earlier? The first person who put a hand on me. Whoa, Roman citizen, right? Isn't that what you would do? Unless he got like bopped in the head and was unconscious or something, and he couldn't. And yet Paul doesn't bring the Roman citizenship card. He, we know that he was awake in the prison. He's singing songs. I would be singing songs about my Roman citizenship, you know, like Yankee Doodle or something. Like, I, I shouldn't be here. No trial. What is going on here? And yet Paul has never brought it up. And I think it goes back to, remember when the doors were open, Peter took off in Acts chapter 12. Paul didn't. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit led him not to. Why didn't Paul bring the issue up earlier about being a Roman citizen? I would suggest to you again, it's because the Holy Spirit prompted him not to. Because had he, when they dragged him through the magistrates, he may have never met this jailer. And this jailer would have never come to the place of faith. And this jailer's family would have never come to the place of faith. You remember when this whole mission trip, well, halfway through this mission trip, the call to go over to to Philippi, it was a vision in the night. And the vision was of a man saying, come over here and help us. Well, they get over there and they meet Lydia, a woman. And then they interact with a slave girl, a little girl. This is the first man they really are interacting with that comes to the faith. It seems that's the person that was in the vision saying, come over here and help us. And so had Paul pulled his Roman citizenship card earlier to protect himself from the beating, to protect himself from being put in prison, he may have never had the opportunity to interact with this jailer at all and lead this jailer to the place of faith. And so Paul, dependent on the Holy Spirit, obedient to the Holy Spirit, holds back in demanding his own civil rights so that he could go to the place that God is leaving them. Because leading them, I should say. Obedience to the will of God is more important to Paul than even his prized civil rights that he possessed. And the lesson for each of us is this, brother and sister, it's this. God may ask you 
to lay down your rights for the good of another person. Are you willing to do so? Paul is here. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison. They visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. I really like this about Paul, probably because I have a bad attitude. But he's like, yeah, we'll leave. We'll leave when we're ready. I think I'm going to wander the streets a little and talk to some people and say hi to people. And then we'll head out when we're ready to go. But they want to go back to Lydia and they want to visit with her. They want to thank her probably for her hospitality. They want to encourage her a little bit in this new faith. And her whole household, remember, they probably stopped by and saw the little slave girl and said to her, look, you hang out with Lydia. She's good people. All right. And she'll take care of you and she'll make sure that things are good. They want to talk to the new Christians in that community, the jailer. They want to talk to his family that has gotten saved. Maybe they gathered them all together. Maybe they had a meal or something. And they said, look, we're going to be leaving, but God's not leaving you. He's going to continue. And they want to encourage all of them in the faith, 15 of them, 20 of them maybe, that have come to the faith. He sees to it that they're encouraged. He sees to it that they're established in the Christian faith before he heads out. And the last thing that I'll point out here is the last thing that he does to encourage them and establish them in the faith doesn't, isn't specifically told to us, but we, we pick it up here in verse 40, and that is that he leaves Luke behind. And so remember, Luke joined them halfway through this trip when they came to Troas. Notice how verse 40 is worded. That it says, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. And so what happens once more is Luke switches tenses. And so remember, prior to chapter 16 or so, he was speaking about them and they and what, what was going on and what they were doing. That's the first person, right? Or third? That's the third person. He's my English major. Right, and he helps me in that regard. Then in 16, he says we and us and Luke has joined the team. But now as Paul and Silas and Timothy are leaving Philippi, he goes back to they. So Paul, Silas and Timothy left, but Luke remains. And I, I'm going to suggest to you, he remains to be the pastor of this small church to help establish them, to teach them, to, to point them to the things of the scripture so that they can grow in their faith as well. Because that's Paul's desire, is that people would be established in the faith. Amen? Amen. All right, let's finish with prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul, Silas, Lord, what an example to us, a challenging example a lot of us are grumblers and complainers. It's our natural tendency. A lot of us hold grudges. When this guy would fall down before us, we'd have a hard time being willing to tell him how he can be forgiven. He deserves to be judged the way he treated me. Lord, a lot of us do things that are in our best interest but may, may not be what your Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us to do and desires for us to do. And so, Lord, I, I'm grateful today for the example of Paul and Silas. Lord, I think every one of us wants to be people that are more like them. And if we don't, then, Lord, would you change our hearts that we would? Would you give us eyes that are firmly fixed on heaven? And would you use us in the lives of other people? Lord, that when the going gets really rough in their lives, that they would know where they can come and find an answer through us to you. So bless your word today. Use it in our lives, we pray. Amen.